Blog Talk Radio. Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Selah. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, Ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But ye shall die like men, and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Well, good morning, everyone. This is Kennard speaking. I'm your host for the Merciful Servants of God Biblical Instructional Program. Today is March 3rd, 2012. Happy Shabbat or Sabbath to those who are keeping the day. Uh, There are some interesting developments that I want to speak about in reference to Iran, which uh, in the Bible is Persia, Uh, before I get into Purim, which has something to do with Iran and uh, the Jews. There was a recent news report that uh, I must read you, and uh, if anyone is familiar with the way I uh, do this program, I will from time to time, talk about uh, what I believe to be significant uh, events in the world that we need to be looking at based on the scriptures. Um, In Luke chapter uh, 21, uh, Yeshua or Jesus tells us plainly not to be asleep and that we need to look at world events if we're living in the time that we're living in today. And of course, uh, when he spoke to his disciples back then, that was really referring to the fact that And that applies to us today. We could all die at any time. So we always must watch our spiritual condition. But for people who are living in these end times, and there's no doubt, there shouldn't be any doubt in your mind or anyone else's that this is the end time. I'm going to go into that a little more in detail today, proving that this is the end time. However, uh, I'm not going to be predicting any dates. I don't know if Yeshua doesn't know the day or the hour. I certainly don't either. But... He did tell you that when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. What? What's at the doors? His second coming. And his his second coming is near, but what does that mean? Does that mean 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40? We don't know. And Yeshua doesn't know because he said he doesn't know. Only the Father knows. But what the Father wants us to know is that this is the end time. And I'm going to explain to you in a simple way how this is the end time. So anyway, and this is in the context of uh, what's going on in the news, because um, we are in a nuclear bomb age, folks. We've been in a nuclear bomb age since 1945. And the nuclear bomb age, really, to to be able to simplify it for you, is an age where we have the capability of destroying civilization as we know it. So there was a meeting. Uh, Let me get this article here. Or there will be a meeting. Actually, there will be a meeting uh, next week between Obama and Netanyahu. 
Netanyahu is the Prime Minister of Israel. Obama, as I hope you know, is the President of the United States. This article was published in the New York Times, March 1st, by Ethan Groner. He was located in Jerusalem, and he wrote this article. Nearly four years ago, when Senator Barack Obama was running for president and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel was head of the opposition, they met here in what aides described as a warm atmosphere. Senator Mr. Netanyahu said to Mr. Obama, As president, many things will cross your desk, but the most important by far will be stopping Iran from obtaining nuclear weapons. On Monday, which is... Um, Monday will be March 5th. The two will meet again in the shadow of the American presidential election, and Iran will again dominate the conversation. Remember, Iran in the Bible is Persian. But uh, it says this situation will be replaced by a weary intrigue as Mr. Netanyahu and Mr. Obama try to sort out their differences in timing, messaging, and strategic bottom lines on how to grapple with Iran while also managing their own strained relationship. So they do have a strained relationship. Uh, Mr. Netanyahu will address AIPAC, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee. Thank you for defining that acronym. <laughs> right after his White House meeting is hoping to prompt more clarity from Mr. Obama on how he sees increasingly tough sanctions and diplomacy with Iran playing out in the coming months. So, also, he wants to press Mr. Obama on where his red line lies, how and when the United States will decide whether sanctions are succeeding or failing, and how committed he is to use the force. Officials and analysts is not talking about the Star Wars force, uh, use of force. <laughs> he is to use the force. Officials and analysts following the discussions on both sides said in recent days is to the use of force, I should be saying. All right. For Mr. Obama, the challenge is to deliver two competing messages. He wants to join Mr. Netanyahu in warning Iran to abandon his nuclear program or face military action. Now, this is uh, important, folks. But also to press him to give time to sanctions and diplomacy and hold back his military. Time is being billed as the most important encounter ever between the two. Let me underscore that. This is being billed, not time, but this is being billed as the most important encounter ever between the two, said Abraham or Abraham H. Foxman, National Director of the Anti. Uh, defamation league and a prominent Jewish leader, or the anti-defamation uh, league and a prominent Jewish leader. Both of them need success here. There has to be a serious understanding. There has to be real trust, and so far I don't think it's there. All right, so anyway, we, we know that they're going to have this meeting. Um, I know that Obama's going to give a speech to the American-Israeli Public Affairs Committee Sunday morning. And Netanyahu is going to give a speech on Monday. And they're both going to address the issue with Iran. And I was just reading that they were stating that Netanyahu's speech is going to be groundbreaking. So I don't know if he's going to be um, emphatic about attacking Israel, but we'll see what the deal is with that. So that's what's going on with Iran right now. They are really, really addressing this issue with them trying to develop nuclear weapons, and they're really seriously now contemplating attacking Iran. And just like this uh, one article in the New York Times, the headline, it says, U.S. sees Iran attacks as likely if Israel strikes. 
So it, it's just uh, this is some serious issues, folks, and we need to not put our head in the sand and think that everything's going to be okay. Uh, I just have to talk about this. Uh, we need to pray for the people. It's been 31 people that have died so far from these horrifying tornadoes, uh, just destroying the the, the uh, midwestern or mid-eastern part uh, or mid-western part of the United States. Uh, and we just need to be praying for them. But it doesn't surprise me that God is allowing these things. Uh, we, we're we trying to embrace homosexuality like we never have before. I just got through looking at uh, a segment of Pierce Morgan, the, uh, the show that replaced Larry King on CNN, and they had this one guy that played in uh, this outstanding movie. Uh, I'm trying to remember which one it was, but it was a religious movie. And he Pierce was putting the guy on the spot, Saying, well, do you think homosexuality is a sin and all that? And and then he tried to make him make him feel guilty because, of course, he was saying things to, to prove that he feels that it is a sin, and the Bible plainly states it's a sin. And he says, well, hey, if if Pierce was saying if my son came to me and told me that he was gay, then I would say, okay, well, as long as you're happy. Well, the, the other guy was saying, well, I wouldn't say as long as you're happy. I would sit down with him and tell him uh, the consequences of, of his decision about being gay as any father who knows the Bible and, and understands morality should. You know, common sense, I've gone over this over and over again, common sense tells you, without even without the Bible, that being a, a homosexual is a sin. All right? A sin means transgression of the law. And it's a sin. Plain and simple is that in the beginning, God didn't create two men and two women to procreate. He created a man and a woman. That's common sense. Uh, to have a baby, you have to have a sperm, you have to have an ovum. The, the sperm uh, unites with the ovum, and, be, and, and it becomes an embryo. You, you cannot create a human being from two sperms and two ovums. So that is common sense, folks. Uh, if there were all gay people in the world, there would not be any kind of um, creation as far as procreation or continuing uh, the human race. So just based on that alone, being a homosexual is a sin. It's a sin to the people who are doing it, and it also destroys society, as um, Leviticus plainly states in reference to homosexuality. Uh, let me see if I can turn there here real quick. But, you know, when we when we start doing these things, and I know in the past couple of weeks uh, governors have signed uh, – gladly to allow same-sex marriage and all that. And you, know, you, you just can't, folks, you can't expect God to just sit there and just say, okay, I love it. You know, he, he's not going to do that. He's going to do things to help us to understand that we need to recognize that that's wrong. And that's why he allows all these weather disturbances and everything uh, to try to wake us up to reality that we're sinning and that we need to stop doing this. And in Leviticus 18, let me read this in the... Um, clear version here in the 1965 Bible and basic English version here Leviticus chapter 18 verse 22 you may not have sex relations with men as you do with women it is a disgusting thing verse 23 and you may not have sex relations with a beast making yourself unclean with it and a woman may not give herself to a beast it is an unnatural act and then verse 24 of Leviticus chapter 18. Do not make yourself unclean in any of these things. For See, number one, you make yourself unclean when you do this. 
It says, For so have those nations whom I am driving out from before you made themselves. And this happened back then, during the time of Moses, but uh, or Moses, and it's, it's happening today. It's happening today. Verse 25, And the land itself has become unclean, so that I have seen on it the reward of its wrongdoing, and the land itself puts out those who are living in it. So then keep my rules and my decisions and do not do any of these disgusting things, those of you who are Israelites by birth or any others who are living with you. It says, For all these disgusting things were done by the men of this country who were there before you, and the land has been made unclean by them. So homosexuals, they contaminate the environment according to what God says here. Verse 28, So that the land may not put you out from it when you make it unclean, as it put out the nations which were there before you. For all those who do any of those disgusting things will be cut off from among their people. So then keep my order so that you may not do any of these disgusting things which were done before you, or make yourselves unclean through them. I am the Lord, your God. So this is pretty plain, folks, uh, that homosexuality is wrong. And we're living in a very wicked age where you have someone on a popular talk show being interrogated, basically, and being made to feel uncomfortable because they believe correctly that homosexuality is a sin. So, and in Romans, the first chapter, you know, I must speak out about this because hardly anyone seems to be speaking out about it in a bold way. And I'm going to, if people know me, I'm going to speak bold about something. I don't give a crap what you think. I only care about what God says. That's all I care about. And anybody that backs up God, I care about that, but I don't care about anyone having their own opinions. You can have on your opinions, but you better make sure your opinion lines up with God's opinion. Opinion means belief, uh, because if it doesn't, he's going to say, okay, well, see that fire over there? Um, get on over there, you know, and you'll be tossed on like a fire and burned to a crisp. All right? So you better make sure that your opinion lines up with God's opinion. So that's that's all I'm telling you right there. So... In Romans chapter 1, trying to find this verse here, verse 26. For this reason, God gave them, wait a minute, verse 25. Let's get in the context here. This is in the um, 1965 Bible and Basic English Version. Romans 1 verse 25. Because by them the true word of God was changed into that which is false, and they were and they gave worship and honor to the thing which is made, and not to him who made it, to him be blessing forever, so be it. Verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to evil passions, and their women were changing the natural use into one which is unnatural. And we know what that is, right? Lesbianism. Verse 27, In the same way the men gave up the natural use of the woman and were burning in their desire for one another, as they are today. They were doing it back then. Men doing shame with men and getting in their bodies the right reward of their evil doing. I just told you that when you do this, you curse yourself. Verse 28, and because they had not the mind to keep God in their knowledge, God gave them up to an evil mind to do the things which are not right. Being full of all wrongdoing, evil, desire for the goods of others, um, hate, envy, putting to death, fighting, deceit, cruel ways, evil talk, and false statements about others. Hated by God, full of pride without respect, full of loud talk, given to evil intentions or Inventions, not honoring father and mother, without knowledge, not true to their undertakings, unkind, having no mercy, who, through they have knowledge of the law of God, that the fate of those who do these things is death, not only 
go on doing these things themselves but give approval to those who do them. And that is really the mental state of this country and, and other um, Israelitish countries. When I say Israelitish, many pe- people may know, not know what I'm talking about, but uh, you may not have heard this before, but um, Israel, the ten lost tribes, are not lost to me, and they won't be lost to you if you believe me. Uh, the ten lost tribes, or the ten found tribes, are currently uh, consists of the United States, uh, the uh, British Commonwealth of Nations, Canada, New Zealand, South Africa, Australia, and the countries in Northwestern Europe. And to prove this, you need to go to Yer Davidi's website. It's www.beasandboy.org to enlighten uh, your education on something that you really need to understand to understand future history and past history, biblical prophecy. So I, I encourage and challenge you to go review that website and get educated and understand who Israel is today. Israel is not just the Jews in the Middle East. The Jews today is the tribe of Judah. And Genesis chapter 49 explains all the different tribes and is in the context of the end times, which is another, I think I did, yeah, I did do a program on that called The Twelve Tribes of Israel in the Archives. I suggest you study that. But anyway, uh, we are Israel. We are part of Israel, a significant part of Israel today, uh, United States, and we are linked with the Jews. We, we have been in the past, and we are now. And we need to understand what's going on with modern-day Persia, which is Iran today. And we're going to get into the story of Purim so that you can understand the significance of the day and why we should celebrate it. You know, you don't have to take a day off. If you can, you should. But uh, if you can't, that's fine. You can celebrate it the best you can. But you really need to observe this because Yeshua observed it. And I'm going to prove to you that he did. So anyway, uh, what I want to do first is give you some information. I'm going to try to simplify this as best I can to prove to you that we are in the end times that the Bible is talking about. And I gave this much thought, and I'm in the process of reviewing a, um, I haven't had the chance to really review it, but there's a lot of good points that I'm going to take from his Bible study. But I do disagree on some things. Um I think that the the primary thing that I disagree on is uh, he acts like his a lot of people think it's a sin to look at the news or be aware of the news and, and and try to see where we're at in Bible prophecy. And I don't think that's a sin. I don't think there's anything wrong with doing that as long as you have a a sane head about it or you're not acting insane about it and, and just being totally uh, disturbed. Um, and along that line, let's turn to Matthew chapter 24. I'm going to read this in the New American Standard uh, Bible version. And uh, Matthew chapter 24, verse 3. And this is interesting because this whole chapter summarizes prophecy, folks. It really, really... You know, Yeshua did us a favor, and Yeshua, for those who are listening to me for for the first time, that's his Hebrew name, Uh, Jesus' Hebrew name, Yeshua. Uh, He simplified prophecy for us, and he's in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 24, it says, As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming 
and at the end of the age. So, of course, the context of this entire chapter is his second coming and the end of the age, the age of mankind trying to rule himself, which we failed miserably. So that's the context. This is what this whole chapter is about. It's about his second coming and the end of the age. If you don't understand this, you're going to get tripped up, and you're not going to understand what he's talking about. English teachers teach people who are trying to understand English, the context of what you're reading. The same thing applies here. You have to understand the context of what you're reading, what's above and what's below. All right? And this is the common theme of this whole chapter, the, the, uh, the sign of his second coming. Certainly he's not talking about his first coming because he's already there on the earth at the time that they're asking him this, this question. So the, the, the sign of his second coming and at the end of the age or the end of mankind trying to rule himself. Okay? And then he tells you in, in verse 4, Jesus answered and said to him, See that no one deceives you. That's the first thing that came out of his mouth. There will be a lot of deception, folks. There's so much deception today. Harold Camping is just one of the many examples that I can give you of the deception that people are using to deceive or the devil's using through these people to deceive you. And the only way to get out of that deception is to listen to people carefully and compare what they're saying with the Bible. That's the only way that you're going to able to uh, confirm that me or some other people are speaking the words of God. And also, here's another way the scripture just popped in my brain here in, in Jeremiah chapter 23. Many people don't understand the power of God's words and what it, it does. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 29. And all I do, folks, I don't have my own ideas and, and speculations. Uh, I try to steer away from that. Uh, all I'm supposed to do is speak God's words, and that's what I do. Jeremiah 23, verse 29. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters a rock. God's words are powerful. If you are listening to me and you're getting a little disturbed or a little irritated or a little you know, uncomfortable, that's, that's what happens when God is speaking to you, folks. That's what happens, especially when you're sinning and not doing the things you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be provoked. You're supposed to, to feel a little uncomfortable. And say, hey, maybe I need to change. Maybe I need to. Maybe I, yeah, I need to to really get into this Bible here, and I need to change my life. I need to repent because remember, what's the, what's the theme of the of the gospel? Repent, repent. The kingdom of God is coming, right? Repent, repent means Hebraically to change your mind. That's what it means. We all got something wrong with us. We all have to change, and we all have different levels of sin. That we're that we're experiencing, and we the gospel message is a message of change. We all have to change, and preaching God's word will. You know, uh, what I do, I hope that people listen to it because all I'm doing, I'm just a little instrument that He's using. I'm just reading His words. That's all I'm doing is reading His words. So you know, we 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 have to understand that, 
And God wants us to repent and change. And he says right here um, in verse 20, he said, The prophet who has a dream may relate his dream, but let him who has my word speak my word in truth. What is truth? Psalm 119, verse 142, the Torah, or the teachings of God. Of course, the King James Version translates Torah into law, but Torah means the instructions of God, which includes his rules and regulations. Okay, that's the truth. So, you know, again, in verse 29, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters rock? And then in Romans chapter 10, it talks about the fact that there has to be preachers. I don't think people understand that, but uh, a lot of people don't seem to understand that preachers are necessary, or a significant amount anyway. In verse 14 of Romans chapter 10, it says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Okay, so there has to be preachers. But you have to make sure you're listening to the right preacher. That's the problem. Uh, let me let me find another scripture here. One where it says about listening. And, you know, we have to listen to the word of God. Verse 15 of Romans chapter 10, it says, How will they preach unless they are sent? So preachers are sent, just as it is written. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news of good things. And that's what I try to do each and every week in this program, is is bring good news of good things. Verse 16, however, they did not, and this is the history of Israel, and we are like this today. We're stubborn, and we want to be ignorant, and we don't want to listen to God's words. Romans 10, verse 16, however, they did not hear. All heed the good news. For Isaiah says, and he's, you know, for people who bash Paul, well, he's quoting from Isaiah here. Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ or Jesus. So trust, as faith really means trust hebraically, so trust comes from hearing. And hearing, and hearing hebraically means understanding and understanding by the word of Christ. Okay? So we have the the word of Christ in the written form anyway. It's the Bible. All right, so we have to get into this Bible and understand it, folks. And, you know, my job is to lead and direct you to study the Bible. I'm not going to study the Bible for you. Okay? You have to get into the Bible yourself and study the Bible. And then verse 18 of Romans chapter 10, But I say, surely they have never heard have they? Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words into the ends of the world. Back then, that's what happened. Verse 19, but I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. Prophecy of Gentiles understanding or given an opportunity to uh, understand the words of God. Verse 20, and Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. (laughs) I became manifest to those who did not. Wait a minute. What happened here? Uh, Scriptures went away from me here. Okay, verse 18. Verse 19 and then verse 20. 
And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long, and this is a prophecy, he's doing it today. All the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate, obstinate means stubborn, people. And that's what we are. We're very stubborn. We want our entertainment. We want our this and we want our that. We want this and want that. But when it comes to morality, when it comes from right and wrong, we start to have a fit, especially when it comes to the God's morality. We, we have a very difficult time with that. And God is tired of that, folks. And there will be more hurricanes. There will be more earthquakes. There will be more disturbances until we collectively, as a human race, repent. And if we don't do that, there's going to be more destruction. Jeremiah 18. Jeremiah 18. Verse 7. Many people don't know that this scripture is here. But you've got to understand that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles, which is represented by the apostolic scriptures and the prophets. That's in Ephesians 2, verse 20. That's the foundation. If anybody is a builder, you understand what a foundation is, right? That's the foundation of the assembly. So this is the reason why I go. And I go and and quote from the prophets. I use the Old Testament. I don't like the word Old Testament. I rather say Tanakh the scriptures, and I go to the other scriptures, which is the New Testament. I don't like that either. It should be renewed covenant scriptures or apostolic scriptures. All right? Jeremiah 18, verse 7. At what moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, and destroy, as he does in these prophecies, in the many prophecies in the Bible. Verse 8. If that nation, even Syria right now, if they repent, which I don't see that they are, the leadership anyway, if that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. Or it can work the other way, folks. Verse 9, or at another moment I might speak to, uh, concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. Verse 10, if it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good, with which I had promised to bless it. All right? And remember, for those people that think that Jeremiah was just a prophet to Israel, uh, verse 5 of Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations, not just Israel, the nations. So this prophecy applies to the entire world, folks. So we need to understand that there is a God, and he exists, and he expects his believers not to be ignorant of world events. Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians. This is a plain scripture, folks. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. Now as to the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And when you turn to Revelation chapter 16, Yeshua talks about that thief in the night. 
let's hold your place there and turn to Revelation chapter 16. We don't have to guess about what this is. I know many people say, well, the thief of the night has something to do with the when the priests and and all that and so forth. I'm not going to get into that, but but let's go. Let's, let's look at what the Bible is saying. Sometimes, yes, actually, in many cases, Jewish tradition can help us understand the Bible, but that certain factual information would throw us off what the thief in the night is talking about. The thief in the night, rather. In Revelation chapter 16. The thief in the night is really talking about when Yeshua comes back and lands his feet on the Mount of Olives. It's going to be like a thief in the night. Revelation chapter 16, verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, which is near Iraq, and his water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Verse 13. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, Verse 14, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to gather them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Now, here's the Bible interpreting itself. In verse 15, it talks about a great battle, the, the battle of the great day of God the Almighty, which is the day of the Lord. And in verse 15, behold, and this is in red letters, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be exposed. So he's going to come as a thief to those who are sleeping or drunk at this particular period of time in world history. Uh, so that's, this is what this, the thief in the night is talking about the day of the Lord, when he comes back and lands his feet on the Mount of Olives. Verse 16, And they assembled them at the place that is in Hebrew called Armageddon. And in verse 17, the seven angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. What's done? The judgments of God has been, com been completed. That's what it's talking about. Verse 18, And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. So if you're still alive and you experience this earthquake, you know that all the judgments of God have been executed. Verse 19, The great city was split into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell, all the, uh, the, the, the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the Great to make her drain the cup of her wine and the fear of his wrath. And I want to make a, a point here. Babylon was destroyed back during the times of the Old Testament. It will be destroyed again. Prophecy is dual despite what other people may teach you. Verse 20, in a lot of cases, is dual. Verse 20, and every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. In verse 21, And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hell, because the plague was so severe. And it tells you the, the mental state of people at this point, where they're going to be cursing God for punishing them, rightfully so, because they don't want to obey him. But that's going to be the mental state of people at this point in world history, unfortunately. So anyway, getting back to First Thessalonians, you understand what the thief of the night is talking about, all right? It's talking about the day of the Lord. In First Thessalonians chapter five, verse one. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Is that pretty plain? It should be pretty plain to most people, right? If you understand English, verse three. While people are saying there is peace and security, like they're saying now, right? They're saying peace, peace, the peace process, right? 
and security. Then will sudden destruction come upon them. These are the people that actually are brainwashed into thinking that there's worldwide peace right now and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you, he's talking about the true believers, are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, the day of the Lord. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do. The majority of the world, folks, is, you know, when it comes to world news and events. They are. They're asleep. They're Sleep, totally sleep, and they're not. They don't get woke up unless a Katrina happens or if Israel attacks Iran. I guarantee you, the whole world will be woke on that one, and and, and so forth. They 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 wait until world events occur, and then they start thinking. <laughs> excuse me. Then they start thinking about God. So in verse six, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Verse seven, for those who sleep sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. <laughs> so, and in verse 8, it says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on a breastplate of faith and a love and, a, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. In other words, we, we continue to be righteous and, and keep the commandments, folks. That's what we have to do. And then Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21. starting in verse 34. But watch yourselves, that not your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. Dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, that that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. Let me see if I can find an easier translation there. Here we go. And the... Uh, 1965 Bible in basic English version, Luke 21, verse 34. But give attention to yourselves for fear that your hearts become overfull of the pleasures of food and wine. That's better. And the cares of this life, and that day may come on you suddenly and take you as in a net. For so it will come on all those who are living on the face of the earth. He's talking about if you're fortunate enough to be alive at this point in world history, when the tribulation and, of course, the day of the Lord comes when he lands his feet on the Mount of Olives. Verse 36, but keep watch at all times with prayer that you may be strong enough to come through all these things and take your place before the Son of Man. That can mean a lot of things. You could die and uh, be uh, be with uh, Yeshua at that time, or you could be protected and be allowed to live through all these things and then be changed. You're going to be changed. You have to, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So, you're going to have to be changed. You're not going to have a physical body anymore, so we're all going to be dying one way or the other. Okay, That body is going to be destroyed, and you will have a spiritual body. So we're all going to have to experience death, folks. You can't run away from it. So, but we're going to take our place before the Son of Man if we keep watch at all times with prayer. And prayer means speaking to God, having communication with God, that you may be strong enough to come through all these things and take your place before the Son of Man. All right, and that is a very important thing to remember. And then it's not, you know, the you know FEMA tells us to be prepared for emergencies, so we should be prepared for emergencies anyway. But in Hebrews eleven verse seven, it says, "By faith Noah, being moved by the fear of God, was the fear of God to hate evil." Right? 
Proverbs 8, verse 13, made ready an ark for the salvation of his family because God had given him news of things which were not seen at the time. And he's given us news of things today through the media, uh, through the Bible. And we need to take hold of that. And through it, the world was judged by him, and he got for his heritage the righteousness, which is by faith. So, you know, we have to follow his example, and I think there's a better translation than that, though. Uh, It says, in verse 7, English Standard Version Bible, but by faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Okay, so... He did that for the saving of his household, meaning that we should follow that example. In particular, in Luke chapter 17, Yeshua relates these end times to the days of Noah. Verse 20. Verse 22, uh, Luke 17, verse 22. And he said to his disciples, These days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. Verse 23. And they will say to you, look there, or look here, do not go out or follow them. Verse 24, for as he's talking about his second coming here, that's the context. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. He's talking about the generation in the first century. Verse 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man, the coming of the, the second coming of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the flood, the ark rather, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Verse 28, likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling and planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur, rain from heaven and destroyed them all. Verse 30, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. All right, so he's telling us that... uh, the day these modern times are similar to the days of Noah, and I just read you what Noah did. We should be all conscientious, and we should be preparing for emergencies, including the big emergency of the Great Tribulation occurring, and so forth. If God blesses us to be protected physically and to live through it, so we should wisely prepare. We shouldn't be paranoid, but we should be prepared for these things. So there's nothing wrong with. Um, doing that, and there's another scripture here that I want to bring up here. And this is one of the reasons why brethren need to fellowship with one another. Hebrews 10, verse 25, or actually verse 24. And this is what Purim is about too, folks. I'm going to get into Purim here, but it's about giving and caring about the poor and Uh, Hebrews 10, verse 24, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, verse 25, and not neglecting to meet uh, together, as is the habit of some, and yes, there is, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So for us to see the day drawing near, we have to keep up with world events to see that it's drawing near, folks. Do you understand that? I mean, that's common sense, right? So, and then Matthew chapter 24 states this and you know again let's understand the context of matthew 24 it's about his second coming and the close of civilization or the end of mankind trying to rule itself all right so he states here in matthew chapter 24 he elicits a number of things uh 
and he states um, in verse 33, so also when you see all these things, what things? The things he was talking about in the chapter, you know that he is near at the very gates or at the doors. That's what the King James Version says. So for us to understand that he's near, those living in the nuclear bomb generation, uh, we, we need to understand what's going on in, in, in world events so that we'll understand that uh, his coming is near. Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 3. Verse 1 it says, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be... Oh, Second Thessalonians chapter 3. Oops, I think I got it wrong. Okay, here we go. Wait a minute. Here we go. I think it's Second Timothy. Yeah, I meant Second Timothy. Chapter 3, sorry about that. Verse 1. Second Timothy. Second Timothy. Second Timothy chapter three verse one. But understand this that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying his power, avoid such people. It sounds like the United States, doesn't it? You know, it's a perfect description of how we are. Yeah, I know you probably may have heard of the news of, uh, I'm in Ohio, but I don't live in Cleveland or in the Cleveland area, and it was this uh, young 17-year-old went nuts and, and shot and killed three students. Uh, this, when I, when, I, when I hear things like that, it reminds me of this prophecy about the end times. Uh, kids are, are just warped and they're messed up today. And then when things like that happen, it wakes us up, but it doesn't wake us up enough to say, hey, we need to repent. It doesn't wake up Obama to say, hey, we're sinning. I need to stop uh, advocating abortion and, and encouraging homosexuality. I'm cursing the nation. You know, it, it doesn't lead him to do things like that, unfortunately. But Matthew chapter 24, verse 21, is a pivotal scripture in this entire chapter of Matthew. Verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation, not tribulation, but great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be. And verse 22, and if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days would be cut short. Now, let me ask you a question. When in world history do we get to a point where this scripture could be fulfilled, folks, where it says here, if those days had not been cut short? No human being would be saved again. Let me repeat that. If those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved or alive. Certainly not in the first century. Well, remember what happened in 1945 for those who are history students, for those who are old enough to remember. Uh, we detonated a bomb and we dropped a bomb on Nagasaki and Hiroshima or Hiroshima and there was a significant damage done and i remember uh Harry Truman you can look this up on the internet he stated that we've reached a, another phase a significant phase in world history that we are now capable of 
destroying civilization. We have tapped into the power of the universe, the power of the sun. And we never did that before. And then, two years after that devastation, in 1947, the doomsday clock was set and created at the University of Chicago and was set at seven minutes to midnight, which I've which is very significant because seven is the number of completion. What was completed was the fact that the countdown to mankind's destruction began. I got this uh, segment from wikipedia.org. And you can look this up yourself on Google. The Doomsday Clock. It says, the Doomsday Clock is a symbolic clock face maintained since 1947 by the Board of Directors of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists at the University of Chicago. It's interesting. I used to live in Chicago. The closer the clock is to midnight, the closer the world is estimated to be... It says, the closer the clock is to midnight, the closer the world is estimated to be to global disaster. The most recent officially announced setting, five minutes to midnight, 11.55 p.m., was made on January 10, 2012. So they moved the clock two more minutes to five minutes to midnight. And this is interesting. God, I know, inspired these atomic scientists to do this, to help those who have eyes to see and ears to hear to understand that we're in the end times, folks. No no other... uh, there's, There's been no other occurrence of this in world history, as far as I know, where a group of atomic scientists have created a clock to let us know when or how soon we are to the destruction of civilization. It says, reflecting international events dangerous to humankind, the clock's hands have been adjusted 20 times since its inception in 1947, when the clock was initially set to 7 minutes to midnight, 11.53 p.m. Says originally the clock analogy represented the threat of global global nuclear war. So it represented the threat of global nuclear war. However, since 2007, it has reflected climate changing technologies and new developments in the life sciences that can inflict irrevocable harm. So in addition to, I mean, we we can destroy this earth not just with nuclear bombs, but other things too. But we just have the capability today. The, the main thing is to understand we since 1945 we have had the capability of destroying mankind off this earth. And that's what Yeshua is obviously talking about here. Uh, he says, if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. That could not refer to the first century uh, during the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire did not have nuclear bombs. They did not have the capability of destroying all of mankind off the face of the earth, as we do today. So based on that, we know that that's the simplest way to prove that we are in the end time. The second uh, way to prove is our social condition right now. Okay, uh, I I showed and proved to you that uh, he compared these days to the days of Lot, as well as Noah. Well, we know what happened in the days of Lot, right? Sodomy, right? And many people think that the, uh, that sodomy is just homosexuality. It's much more than that, folks. Let's turn to Ezekiel chapter sixteen. Ezekiel chapter 16, starting in verse 49. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. And this is what Kiram is about today, folks. 
that's the, uh, what Purim, the center of it is about celebrating and and taking care of the poor. That's why you should celebrate it. Ezekiel 16, verse 49. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. Okay? So what's the sins of sodomy? Well, number one, having pride, having too much food, prosperous ease, not aiding the poor and the needy. Uh, being haughty and did abominations, which includes all the, the sexual sins of Leviticus chapter 18, including homosexuality, prostitution, and so forth. Okay, we're doing all those things in this country, folks. We're even doing bestiality. They have internet websites about bestiality. All right, we're doing all these abominations that Yeshua stated would be uh, similar to the days of Lot. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 9 to 10. Ecclesiastes, or, or, or Ecclesiastes, uh, chapter 1, verses 9 to 10. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. Let me repeat. What has been is what will be. So he's telling you that a lot of things that have happened in the Bible, there will be a similar occurrence in the future. And what has been done in, in a lot of cases. Now, not in all cases. Uh, Yeshua is not going to come again, right, the first time, right, and become a human being. That's already been done. But there's other scriptures, uh, prophetic scriptures, where this applies. It says what has been is what will be done. It says what has been is what will be. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Verse 10, is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new, it has already been in the ages before us, which is pretty interesting in the days of Noah, which is another Bible study in itself. Anyway, Hillary, you know who Hillary is, right? Hillary Clinton, uh, she met with Jordanian foreign minister, with the Jordanian foreign minister yesterday, and what were they talking about again? What were they talking about again? The peace process. The peace process, right? Peace, 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 right? Judges, which is another prophecy. Judges, chapter 2, starting in verse 1 to 3. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Balchim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my agreement or covenant with you. Verse 2, and you shall make no agreement or covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice, and they haven't done it to this point right now as I'm speaking. What is this you have done? Verse 3, so now I say I will not drive them out before you, but they will become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. And this is a prophecy from the angel of the Lord. And it's still a prophecy that is in force today, folks. And as long as Hillary and Obama and anyone else and, and the Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu are trying to, to work out a peace agreement, they will continue to be thorns in their sides. And that is what is going on today, folks. And then Psalm 83. This is a prophecy in Psalm 83 that reveals that Israel will, with God's help, 
overcome the Iranians and, and all the other uh, Arabs or any other nations that are against them, but they're going to suffer in the meantime. As the book of Judges, see, this is an interesting prophecy because, let me read it. <clears throat> it says, a song, a psalm of Asaph, O God, do not keep silence, do not hold your peace, or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. Now, we've heard uh, Ahmadinejad, right, say this. Almost exact same phrase, right? We've heard him say this. And, and in this context, it's referring to the land in the Middle East, but also can refer to the United States because they call us the great Satan. Okay? Now, remember, the United States is a part of Israel, the ten tribes of Israel, and we are linked with uh, the little nation of Israel, which are the Jews, the tribe of Judah. So, of course, they hate us too. <clears throat> and they hate any other nation that's trying to help Israel. Verse 5, For they conspire with one accord, uh, you know, the Arab League, right? Against you they make a covenant or agreement. The tents of Edom and Ishmaelites and Moab and Hagrites and Gebel and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia, with the inhabitants of Tyre, or Tyre. Ashur has also joined them. Ashur is in the area of Iraq. Okay? They are the strong arm of the children of Lot, Selah, or think about that. Verse 9, do to them as you did to Midian, as to Caesarea uh, and Jabin at the river Kishon. Verse 10, who were destroyed in Endor, who became dung for the ground. So it's talking about what happened with uh, the judge um, Gideon, and also talking about what happened with Deborah, the judge, and also Barak. In both those cases, God gave them the ability to destroy the enemy, and he's going to do that again. So the good news is that Israel will eventually conquer uh, their foes. So that's the good news. That's what this is revealing here. Verse 11, make their nobles like Orb and Zeb and all their princes like Zeba and Zamuna. Zamuna. Verse 12, who said, let us take possession for ourselves the pastures of God. And that's what they want to do. They want to take over Jerusalem. Verse 13, oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like shaft before the wind. And so this is a warning to Iran today and any other nation that wants to destroy Jerusalem or, or want to take uh, Jerusalem away from the Jews. Verse 14, As fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze, so may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Interesting there. Verse 16, Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismay forever and let them perish in disgrace that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. So that's a that's a good prophecy to go. Whenever you hear all this monkey junk uh, with Iran saying they're going to destroy Israel and all these Arabs thinking they're going to do what they're going to do, just read Psalm 83. Psalm 83 is a prophecy of God, and uh, this this prophecy is always applied whenever uh, Israel's enemies have tried to destroy them, and it's always going to apply in any that any that type of situation today, like even the situation today. Uh, Israel is threatened. Despite Israel's sins or the Jews' sins, God will be with them in the end. That's the, the, the moral of the story of this prophecy. All right. Now, let's talk about the, the, the book of Esther because it is linked with Purim. That's where we got the idea of Purim from. Okay? And let's start with Esther chapter 3.
So I'm going to start here, uh, Exodus 3, verse 1. After these things, King Azarerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Now, Haman is, is symbolic. Well, he was a Persian. He was an Iranian. <laughs> so let's understand that, okay? So I know many people think that uh, Amajimajad could be a modern-day Haman. Who knows? You know, But that's who Haman is. In this context, he's a Persian, and he was uh, his throne was set above all the officials who were with him. Verse 2. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. So we're not supposed to bow down to any man, folks. And so he was doing the right thing there. Verse 3, Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And verse 4, And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. All the Jews. So this this is uh, the same desire that Hitler had. The people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Azarias. Verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Azarias, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots. That's where we get the idea of Purim. Purim means lots. Um before Haman day after day, and they cast in month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Azarias, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. Verse 9, If it, if it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. Verse 10, So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. So I don't know if Haman was actually a, a Persian, but he was uh, involved in the Persian Empire or the, or the Iranian Empire. That's what I'm trying to say here. Verse 11, And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Verse 12, Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict according to all the Haman that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in his own script and every people in his own language. It was written in the name of king Azarias and sealed with the king's signet ring. Verse 13, Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Verse 14, A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers, which were people who delivered mail and so forth, went out hurriedly by the order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. All right, so that gives you basically what the problem is here. Uh, Haman wanted to destroy all the Jews, just like today, right? Uh, Iran wants to destroy all the Jews. Now, both Haman 
and modern-day Iran today. Uh, actually, Haman was involved uh, in Persia back then, Iran, and here we go again with the situation. That scripture again applies, Ecclesiastes 1, verse 9 to 10. Whatever happened before will happen again, and, and it's happening again. Not not exactly the same way as it happened back in the days of Esther, but the sentiment, the feeling, the social condition is there. They want to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. If you don't believe me, type in that phrase, wipe Israel off face of Iran, and you'll see that they had um, stated that. Now, I, I think we know the story of, of Purim here, you know, Queen Esther, uh, Esther became the queen and so forth, and and uh, this leads into the next scripture here, Esther chapter 4, verse 13. Now, this is at the point where she's queen, and Mordecai wanted to remind her of her responsibility in reference to morality. Esther chapter 4, verse 13, Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews, because Esther was a Jew. Verse 14, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. See, here we go again. The common human condition is that we really aren't motivated to do anything unless something's going to hurt us or something's going to happen to us. Unfortunately, Esther had to be told this for her to wake up. You know, maybe it was getting to her head that she was queen and all that or whatever, but this is documented here. And and when Mordecai told her this, then she she got busy uh, doing the right thing here. Verse 15, Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, and night or day. That's fasting. Fasting is not eating or drinking at all during a 24-hour period. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Now, see, that's that's the attitude that God wants us to have, folks. You know, if I perish, I perish. They love not their lives to the death. That's what it means in the book of Revelation. And we have to have that same attitude. That's why it's important to go over Purim and what it's all about. Because God may ask us to give our lives, and we have to be strong. We have to have that same attitude that Esther had. Uh, if I perish, I perish. You got to do the right thing. You got to do the right thing. So Esther, and we know the story. She went to Haman, uh, went to the king, and eventually she was able to to encourage the king or influence him to have a meal and invited uh, Haman. And then eventually uh, she was able to reveal Haman's plot to destroy the Jews and 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 so forth. And then he got hung along with his uh, relatives. All right, so that's a synopsis of what happened there. But in Esther chapter 9, Esther chapter 9, starting in verse 15. And so what I'm going to read you here is how the idea of Purim came to be. All right? Esther chapter 9, verse 15. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. And to keep in mind also that the king gave the Jews permission to fight for themselves. All right, Verse 16, Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's providences also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed. Because remember, um, Haman had uh, ordered, uh, the, ordered for the Jews to be destroyed. So 
um, the king gave them permission to fight and defend themselves. So, all right, so verse 16, Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Verse 17, This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that day of feasting and gladness. So Purim is a day of feasting and gladness. Verse 18, But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that day of feasting and gladness. Verse 19, Therefore the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. Verse 20, And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in the provinces of King Azarias, both near and far, obliging them, or obligating them. I mean, what is that word in the original Hebrew? Esther 9, verse 21. All right, let me read this in English Revised Version here. Verse 20, He did did this to tell the Jews to celebrate Purim every year on the 14th and 15th days in the month of Adar. Verse 22, they were to celebrate these days because on these days the Jews, and here's the reason why. Verse 22, they were to celebrate these days because on these days the Jews got rid of their enemies. And they were also to celebrate that month as the month when their sadness was turned into joy. It was a month when their crying was changed into a day of celebration. Mordecai wrote these letters to all the Jews and told them to celebrate those days as a happy day of feasting. They should have parties, give gifts to each other, and give presents to the poor. So here we go again. The focus is on the poor as well. Verse 23, so the Jews agreed to what Mordecai had written to them, and they agreed to continue the celebration they had begun. Haman, son of Hamadava the Agagite, was the enemy of all the Jews. He had made an evil plan against the Jews to destroy them. So this is a summary of what happened. And Haman, Haman had thrown the lot to choose a day, to ruin and to destroy the Jews. At that time, the lot was called a pur. This is where Purim came, comes from. Okay, Verse 25, Haman did this, but Esther went to talk to the king, so he sent out new commands. These commands not only ruined Haman's plans, but these commands caused those bad things that happened to Haman and his family. So Haman and his sons were hanging on the post. At this time, lots were called Purim. So this festival is called Purim. Mordecai wrote a letter and told the Jews to celebrate this festival, and so the Jews started the custom of celebrating these two days every year. And, you know, Yeshua stated, and, and let's hold your place here and let's turn to uh, John to prove to you that Yeshua kept Purim. John 4, verse 22, you Samaritans worship something you don't understand. We Jews understand what we worship since salvation comes from the Jews. So, you know, Yeshua was a Jew, folks, and he kept the commandments. And he kept Jewish traditions that, that did not conflict with the scriptures. And Purim definitely does not conflict with the scriptures. matter of fact, it's a part of the scriptures. Okay, so I know, I don't have to ask him, I know he kept Purim. Purim was a significant a day in Jewish history. And let's remember that Yeshua is a Jew. So I'm sure that he kept Purim. All right? This is common sense that he did. And for for proof, from additional proof, um, the Apostle Paul 
has stated that he kept all the Jewish uh, traditions. So, let me see if I can find this scripture here. Uh, yes, in Acts 28, verse 17, and this is Paul talking here, Shaul. And it came to pass that after three days, Shaul called the chief of the Jews together, and when they were come together, he said to them, Men and brethren, though I have committed nothing against the people or customs of our fathers. So that means he kept the customs of our fathers, the good ones, and one of the good ones was, was pure. And in the first Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, he says, Follow me as I follow Yeshua. So obviously Yeshua kept them, and that's the reason why um, Shaul, kept them as well. So that if, if people are going around preaching that Yeshua didn't keep Purim, they're, they're incorrect in their, their logic. All right, let's go back to Esther, chapter 9. Verse 26. And remember, this is part of the scriptures, folks, which he stated we must live by. We must live by every word of God. All right? This is part of the Word of God. This is the book of Esther, inspired by God. It's, uh, Esther chapter 9, verse 26. At this time, lots were called Purim. So this festival is called Purim. Mordecai wrote a letter and told the Jews to celebrate this festival. And so the Jews started the custom of celebrating these two days every year, and they've been doing it ever since. Verse 28. They do this to help them remember. This is the reason why. It's all in the Scriptures, folks. They do this to help them remember what they had seen happen to them, the Jews and all the people who joined them. Do you realize you joined the Jews, folks, when you state that you believe in Yeshua being the Messiah? He's the king of Israel, right? So you join the Jews when you do that. You join in their celebration. You join in their traditions, their good traditions. You join in all these things when you do that. The scriptures plainly indicate, let's hold your place here again, and first... Um, Chronicles, Corinthians rather, Chronicles. Verse 16, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. Now, we understand, and I hope you understand, that Yeshua is a Jew, all right, because he's still alive, all right? Hebrews 13, verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. All right, so 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, as the scriptures states, who can know what is on the Lord's mind? Who is able to give him advice? But we have been given Christ's way of thinking. Okay? Which is Christ's way of thinking. He's a Jew. So he's gonna he thinks like a Jew. Now, in the King James Version, which I think perhaps may be a better translation, it states, For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. All right? The mind of Christ, folks, is a Jewish mind. <laughs> you know, Romans. Romans, chapter. You don't have to be a Jew, but you must think like a Jew. Why do I say we must think like a Jew? Because Yeshua is a Jew. All right? And we must have his mind, a way of thinking. He stated in John 14, verse 6, he's the way, he's the life, he's the truth. John, uh, Romans, chapter uh, 2, verse 28. For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is he that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly. And circumcision is, is that of the heart and the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. This applies, of course, to a Jew that claims, you know, he said, well, I'm a Jew, and, 
you know, I'm a Jew because I'm a Jew. Well, you know, God is looking at, okay, you may be a Jew, but you have to do the things, you have to obey me to be really considered a Jew. Same thing applies to a Gentile. Because when we um, are part of the commonwealth of Israel, we, we, uh, we may not become a Jew, but we're worshiping a Jew. We're worshiping the Messiah. The Messiah is a Jew, folks. And we don't have to become a Jew, but we must learn how to think like a Jew. And Jews want to obey God. Jews keep the holy days, okay? <laughs> and we must do the same thing. We must do the same thing. And another scripture is coming to play here, I think in Zechariah chapter 8, verse 23, verse 22. Zechariah 8, verse 22. Yes, many people in strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem. And to pray before the Lord, verse 23, this is a prophecy. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold of all the language, languages of the nations, shall, even shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, we will go with you for we have heard that God is with you. Now this is a prophecy, folks. Again, the foundation of the assembly or the church, church really means assembly in Greek or congregation, is based on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The prophets, well, I'm reading one of them right here, Zechariah. And Zechariah, under the inspiration of the Almighty God, says in verse 22, Yes, many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. In verse 23, Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold out of all the languages of the nations, even shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, and many Jews have uh, stated that the skirt really is talking about the zitzit, and the zitzit uh, is is uh, stitched in a way where it represents the 613 commandments that the Jews traditionally teach that are part of the uh, the first five books of, of Moses. Uh, Genesis, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So they're grasping the zitzit and saying, hey, I want to keep those commandments. So anyway, that's why it's important to understand the Hebraic background of the Bible. It says, we will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Okay, so, getting back to, how much time I have left here? Okay, 41 minutes. Uh, getting back to Esther. Chapter 9, verse uh, 26. Wherefore they called these days Purim, I'm reading the King James Version now, after the name of Pur, therefore for all the words of this letter and of that which they had been they had seen concerning this matter and which had come unto them. The Jews ordained and took upon them and upon their seed and upon all such as joined themselves unto them. Excuse me, I'm sorry so as it should not fail, that they will keep those day, two days according to their writing and according to their appointed time every year. And these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation. So that proves that Yeshua kept it in his generation. Every family, every province, and every city, and that these days of Purim should not fail from among the Jews, nor the memorial of them perish from their seed. So this scripture puts a cap on what I've been trying to prove to you, that Yeshua did keep the days of Purim, the scripture. And he said you must live by every word of God. 
Verse 29, then Esther the queen, the daughter of Abihel and Mordecai, the Jew, wrote with all authority to confirm the second letter of Pure. And he sent letters into all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the king of Azarias with words of peace and truth to confirm these days of Purim in their times appointed according to Mordecai the Jew and Esther the queen had enjoined them and as they had decreed for themselves and for their see the matters of, the, of their fastings and their cry. And the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim and it was written in the book. So this that's the origin of Purim. All right? So, I want to focus on the fact that this the Purim is a day of celebration and it's a day of giving to the poor, these two days. In Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 20, let's remember what the Lord said about giving. Acts 20, verse, let's start in Acts 20, verse 33. I have coveted or lusted no man's silver or gold or apparel, Verse 34, yes, you yourselves know that these hands have ministered into my necessities and to them that were with me. So Shaul worked. He was a minister, but he worked, and that's what I do today. I work. I don't covet any man's silver or gold either or clothes. Verse 35, I have showed you all these things, how that so laboring you ought to support the weak. We should support the weak. That's what Purim is about as well, supporting the weak and just celebrating. And it kind of pictures the millennium and pictures things going right and everybody rejoicing and celebrating because God has delivered us from our enemies. That's that's what it's all about. And when Yeshua lands his feet on the Mount of Olives, he's going to be delivering us from our enemies. He's going to be delivering us from our enemies and from the devil. Verse 35, I have showed you all these things, how that so laboring you ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So it is more blessed folks to give than to receive. And that's what we need to understand there about what Yeshua stated. Galatians 2, verse 10. Only that they only they would that we should remember the poor. The same which I also was for to do. So we should remember the poor, and the English Standard Version Bible is a little easier translation. It says, only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So we should be eager to remember the poor, and Purim should help us to remember the poor. Then Ephesians 4, verse 28, why do we work, folks? Many of you think, well, to, to pay my bills and help my family. Well, it should be extended more to, it should be extended to also helping other people. Ephesians 4, verse 28. Ephesians 4, verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need, not just your family, but anyone. And that's what Purim pictures again as well. Now, from this excellent book that I suggest you get, is called God's Appointed Times by Barney Costin. And it's a practical guide for understanding and celebrating the biblical holidays. On page 124, I'm going to read this little section here about the traditional Jewish observance. It says, since the time of Esther and Mordecai, the holy day of Purim has held a distinct place on the Jewish calendar. The dates of the festival are clearly stated in the book of Esther, although there has been some adaptation over the years. 
The date chosen by Haman for the destruction of the Jews was the 13th of the biblical month of Adar. To remember the soberness of that time, the traditional Jewish community begins a fast that day every year from sundown to sundown. So officially the fast this year, according to the Jewish calendar, begins um, March 7th, 4.29 a.m. to 6 p.m. And then that evening, of course, because uh, uh, the day should begin uh, when the sun sets in the evening. Then March 8th and March 9th is Adar 14 and 15. Uh, Adar 13 this year is March 7th. Okay. So it says, to remember the soberness of, of that time, the traditional Jewish community begins a fast that day every year from sundown to sundown. This also recalls the time when Mordecai and Esther began a three-day fast as they sought God's guidance. This is uh, in Esther 4, verse 16, as I read to you. Because of the mighty deliverance on that day, the joyful celebration of Purim begins at sunset on the 14th of Adar and continues through the 15th of Adar. The second day is also called Shushan Purim because the, days, because the Jews celebrated for an extra day in Persia or in modern-day Iran. As the book of Esther indicates, Purim is to be a time of great rejoicing by feasting and rejoicing and sending portions of food to one another and gifts to the poor, in Esther 9, verse 22. Each of these components is, is integrated into the modern celebration of Purim. Feasting is remembered through a festive meal called Suda with family and friends, or at the synagogue, at the Jewish synagogue, or, of course, if you can't attend a Messianic synagogue or a Jewish synagogue, then uh, you can do it within your homes, of course. This takes place in the afternoon of the first day of Purim. Now, if you can do it in the afternoon, that's fine. If not, you can do it in the evening when you get home. The spirit of feasting continues throughout the entire period. As with other Jewish holidays, there is traditional food that has symbolic significance. In the case of Purim, it is the delicious Hamastashin cookies. These are the triangular and stuffed with jam or some other sweet filling. These are triangular and stuffed with jam or some other sweet filling. Hamastashin, or German-Yiddish word, can mean Haman, pockets, or as the Hebrew, Osne Haman says, Haman's ears. These interesting treats remind people of the victory over the awful antagonist. The rejoicing aspect of Purim is seen in other elements. Along with the joyous feast of this holy day, the central focus in the synagogue service is joy. Because the history of Purim is found in story form, the scroll of Esther, the Megillah Esther, is chanted in Hebrew as a dramatic way of recounting the events. This takes place on the first evening of Purim, which is on the... Um, the evening of March 7th, and may be accompanied by a dramatic reenactment of the Purim uh, story. Here the rejoicing becomes full force. As the scroll is read, the villain Haman is vigorously booed at every mention of his name. To blot out his name, noisemakers called groggers are used, sometimes at a deafening volume. By contrast, every mention of the hero Mordecai is followed by a thunderous cheer. So, you know, this is interesting, especially for the kids to get into this. Purim is one of the few synagogue holy days when normal decorum and seriousness are weighed in order to enter into the unrestrained joy. Through the reading of the Megala the, uh, and the party atmosphere, the true joy of deliverance is felt. The rabbinic tradition goes, on, goes so far as to say that one should partake of the joy and drink until one does not even know the difference between Haman and Mordecai. So you shouldn't get drunk, folks, but you get the drift. You should be able to be relaxed. You should be uh, in a very relaxed attitude. So there's great joy associated with the Feast of Purim. As written in the Scriptures, Purim is not only to be a celebration of the redeemed Jews, but also a time to send gifts to the poor of the community. The Hebrew term Mishnah Manat is often translated Shlom Manos in Yiddish, meaning sent portions. 
These shlok manos boxes may include food, sweets, and hamatashin. It is one of the ways Jewish people are reminded to help those who are less fortunate. Some rabbis know the messianic aspect to this holy day, being a day of deliverance and rest from one's problems. Purim was naturally related to the greater day of rest in the days of the Messiah, Okay, which is talking about the millennium here. It says, indeed, Purim is a grand reminder of God's plan for his world and how that plan will be implemented through the coming of the Messiah. So this is a great day to celebrate, folks. Uh, I suggest that you do it. Uh, you don't have to take a day off. If you can take a day off, you should. And you should celebrate this day along with our, our, our brothers, the Jews, and and uh, realize that Yeshua celebrated this day. And, you know, we should follow his example, and we should follow and, and celebrate this day of Purim. And it's very interesting that Purim... Uh, particularly this year, <laughs> it seems to be linked with what's going on with, with the Middle East right now, with Iran and so forth. And Iran, of course, you have to remember that Iran is the modern-day version of Persia. And it's, it's, it's quite interesting that uh, the President of the United States and the Prime Minister of Israel are going to be talking about the issue with Iran. And remember that Iran, its leader, has stated that he wants to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. And that's what Haman wanted to do. He wanted to wipe Israel or the Jews at that time off the face of the earth as well. He wanted to destroy all the Jews. So it's interesting that, remember, on Sunday morning, um, the President of the United States is going to talk to the, uh, what's that organization again? Let me look them up here. It's going to talk to the uh, American-Israel Public Affairs Committee. On Sunday morning, he's going to address, from what the New York Times article states, he's going to address the issue with Iran. And then also Netanyahu on Monday is going to also address Iran. So based on these two uh, statements, we don't know what's going to happen. That's why we have to, to look at world news and events. Uh, we know that in Matthew 24, verse 15, Yeshua stated plainly there that uh, there will be a holy place, there will be a construct, that's going to allow the sacrifices to be initiated. But he's remembered that in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 to 27, it said the temple will be built in troublous times, and this is troublous times right now. You have some people refusing to believe that there's going to be a temple uh, in the end times, but in Revelation chapter 11, it's pretty plain, folks. I, I just don't understand... Uh, why people don't believe God's words. Uh, Revelation, well, I do, but I don't accept it, and neither does God. Revelation 11, verse 1, in the English Standard Version of the Bible, says, Then I was given a, a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God. The temple of God is not an altar, is not uh, anything else but what it says, the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Okay, so the altar is going to be inside the temple. Verse 2, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So this is talking about the start of the um, the Great Tribulation. So obviously God is telling us that there will be a temple. Uh, in Matthew 24, verse 15, let's turn there. I'm only reading to you what God's Word says. So... 15, it says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, when you understand the architecture of the temple, the holy place is a part of the temple's 
construction. So Yeshua is telling us that there's going to be a temple. That's what he's telling us. And you read the book of Daniel, it's all about the temple of God being destroyed. And then and, and then Daniel 9, when it talks about the abomination and desolation, it's talking about a time when the temple is built. So obviously the temple must be built. I disagree when people state that the temple is not going to be built. If you go to templeinstitute.org, they already have everything they need to build the temple. So, you know, let, let, let's stop all this and believe what the scriptures obviously indicate. Second Thessalonians, chapter 2. And this scripture is pretty plain. I, I'm reading some other person's uh, material, and he's stating that this is talking about maybe just a court. I mean, if, how can you sit in a court? I guess you can sit in a court, but based on the other two scriptures I quoted, there has to be a temple built. Second Thessalonians 2, verse 3, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come uh, unless the rebellion comes first, and the, time, and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction. Verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God. Here we go again. It means temple. It doesn't mean tabernacle. The temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. I just you know, don't understand. Well, I do understand. I just don't accept why people just don't want to believe God's words. He says it's going to be a temple. Shaul stated it would be a temple. Yeshua, the fact that he said, stand in the holy place, he said there was going to be a temple. In Revelation chapter 11, John, who was closest to the Messiah, stated that there would be a temple during the times of the Great Tribulation. So there's a temple, folks. Accept it. Okay? I don't know why you don't think it's possible for God to inspire the Jews to build a temple. The, the, the head of the Temple Institute, that's what he wants to do. I believe God has raised him up to do that, to build the temple. He has people on a regular basis contributing toward the construction of the temple. Educate yourselves. The Bible tells us that we are destroyed for lack of knowledge in Hosea 4, verse 6. And he's not talking about just biblical knowledge, any knowledge. We need to stop being mad, as the Bible predicts all the nations are, because of this false system of worship that consists of geopolitics, education, and religion, Babylon today. And we need to become sane, folks, spiritually. Revelation chapter 17 states this. Verse 1 says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. Verse 2, With whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And that's what most people are. They're drunk. They're sleepy. They're, they just don't know what they need to understand. They don't know what they need to know. In Hosea chapter 4, Hosea chapter 4, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. This is a now prophecy, folks. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. He's talking about the majority. He's always a few. But he's talking about the majority. Verse 2. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery, and they break all bonds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. 
He's talking about all the abortions that we allow, over 4,000 every day, okay, in this country. And then all these murders and, and so forth. Verse 3, therefore the land mourns and all who dwell in it language and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Well, that will be happening in the future. Verse 4, yet let no one contend and let none accuse for with you is my contention, O priest or Torah teacher or minister. Verse 5, you shall stumble by day, the prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since, remember, the scripture states that his believers will be king priests. That's what he's referring to. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. I mean, this is serious, folks. Uh, he's not going to protect your children if you forget the law of God when it was taught to you. Okay? It's different if you never heard of the law of God, the teachings of God. He's going to have mercy on you. But if you're listening to me and if you understand what I'm saying, you say, well, you know, I don't care. Well, God's not going to care about your children. That's what he's saying here. Okay? And since you have forgotten the law of God, I also will forget your children. Verse 7, the more they increase, the more they sin against me. I will change their glory into shame. Verse 8, they feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. Verse 10, they shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish. Whoredom wine and new wine which take away the understanding when you enter the state of party hardy hardy warty you can't understand morality you can't understand things of common sense and you certainly can't understand the words of god when you are in a partying state of entertainment that's what he's talking about whoredom takes away your mind wine and new wine takes away your mind verse 12 my people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles, for a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. He's talking about spiritual whoredom, not wanting to obey God, and yet you accepting false religion, as we do in this country. And also he's talking about physical whoredom. As I'm speaking, they're making pornographic movies in Hollywood, and, and, and uh, we, we definitely are the world's leader in, in pornography. And the Bible plainly tells us in Leviticus, let's turn there, Leviticus chapter 19, about pornography and prostitution, which is a form of pornography, whether people want to realize it or not. Because what, what they do, they, they find these good-looking women, and, and they had these women in these movies. They film these movies, and they sell these movies in adult bookstores, right? And they buy it. That's a form of prostitution. It's legal prostitution. Leviticus chapter 18. Okay, I'm trying to find a scripture where it says, don't make your daughter a prostitute. It's in Leviticus chapter 18. I know it is somewhere. I didn't find it here. 
Oh, 19, rather, I'm sorry. Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus 18 is the um, sexual abominations uh, chapter. Yeah, Leviticus 19, verse 29. Do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute. And why, folks? That the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. And it is. Our land, this country, and this applies to any spot in the world, folks. Not just the United States. I'm not just picking on the United States. But this applies to any land. If there's full-blown prostitution, as it is in this country, Las Vegas is legal. I think in certain other parts of the country it's legal as well. God states this in verse 29. I'm reading this complete Jewish Bible version. Do not debase your daughter by making her a prostitute, so that the land will not fall into prostitution and become full of shame. This country is full of shame, folks. Not only is it full of shame as far as prostitution, but here we are trying to endorse and, and, and state that same-sex marriage is okay in God's eyes. So you should not be surprised of any catastrophes that happen to this country, of any bad things that happen in this country in the future. Okay? Isaiah chapter 26. There's a scripture that states... And this is the way, this is the common human condition, folks. Unfortunately, there's not too many people that won't really take God seriously unless they see all this, this, this destruction and so forth. And this is in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 26, verse 9. My soul desires you at night. My spirit in me seeks you at dawn. For when your judgments are here on the earth, the people in the world learn what righteousness is. And what is righteousness, folks? Psalm 119, verse 172 is the keeping or the obedience of uh, keeping the commandments. That's what righteousness is, folks. So so i got 17 minutes left. Let's go over quickly the uh, the Torah readings here. And so you understand what Purim is. And let's go over the Parsha here, the uh, courtesy of Habat.org. Exodus chapter 27, verse 20 to Exodus 30, verse 10. Since God tells Moses to receive the children of Israel pure olive oil to feed the everlasting flame of the menorah, which Aaron is to kindle each day from evening to morning. The priestly garments is to be worn by a koanim while serving in the sanctuary are, are described. All koanim wore the katanet, a full-length linen tunic, a linen breeches, a linen turban, and a long sash wound above the waist. In addition, the high priest wore the ephod, an apron-like garment made of blue, purple, and red dyed wool, linen, and golden thread, a breastplate containing 12 precious stones inscribed with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, a cloak of blue wool with gold bells and decorative pomegranates on his hem, and a zitz, a golden plate worn on the forehead bearing the inscription, Holy to God. So that was the what the priest wore. This passage also includes God's detailed instructions for the seven-day initiation of Aaron and his four sons, Nadav, Ava, Elazar, and Itmar, into the priesthood and for the making of the golden altar on which the incense was burnt. So that's that's what that's all about. And then the um, the Hetor, the prophet section of the 
the writings and scriptures. And this week's Haftar is in Ezekiel 43, verse 10 to 27. The prophet Ezekiel describes a vision of the altar that would be built for the holy temple that would be built in the millennium and its dedication ceremony, paralleling this week's Torah portion, which discusses the dedication of the tabernacle's altar. Shortly after the destruction of the first temple, Ezekiel experienced a vision of the millennial temple that will be built by the Messiah. God tells Ezekiel to recount to the Jewish people this vision, and this hopefully will bring them to be ashamed of the deeds that they did that caused the destruction of the temple. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, let them know the form of the house and the scheme is it, it exists, it's exits rather, I'm sorry. Uh, the form of the house and the scheme is exits and its entrances and all its forms and all its laws and all its teachings. Ezekiel then goes on to describe in detail the temple's altar and also describes the seven-day inauguration ceremony and the offerings which will be bought on each day of that special week. And also the... Um, New Covenant scriptures, uh, I think I read, I've read through those, those to you already. Revelation 11, verse 1 to 3, and Matthew 24, verse 15. All right, so I think that's it today. I don't have anything else to say other than let's pray for the peace of Jerusalem, let's pray for the peace of the world, and let's pray that Obama or some president in the future, if there is going to be another president, we don't know, um, wakes up and, and, and calls his nation to repent and realize what I quoted in Jeremiah 18, verse 7. Let me quote that to you again as I close. Uh, we we have to repent. None of these things, uh, these earthquakes and tornadoes, and it's not going to stop until we repent as a nation, as a world, and, and turn to God. Jeremiah 18, verse 7, At one time I speak concerning uprooting, breaking down, and destroying a nation or kingdom. But if that nation turns from their evil, which prompt me to speak against it, then I, re I will relent concerning the disaster I had planned to inflict on it. So there is hope, folks, but the hope is running out in reference to the Great Tribulation starting. So may God bless and keep you, and God willing, I'll be available to speak to you next week. Malachi chapter 4 For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. 